0: Welcome to this special episode of Common Places, a podcast of Protestant Resourcement. This week we're going to eschew our normal format of interview format and listen to a lecture or a series of stories delivered by Dr. Brad Littlejohn. He was recently in Lynchburg, Virginia, Providence Church, and he spoke about the lives of two reformers, Peter Martyr Vermigli and Thomas Cranmer. As we've just come off a weekend celebrating Reformation Day and All Saints Day it's appropriate to look back at the lives of these two great reformers. In Dr. Littlejohn's talk, he paid particular emphasis to the question of when it was appropriate for these two men to compromise in the face of opposition, or rather stand boldly on truth without concern for consequences. I hope you enjoy this special episode. Great to to meet all of you, um, and uh, to talk about the Reformation here as we approach the 499th anniversary of Luther nailing the 95 Theses uh, on October 31st. Now, the three stories that, uh, if I have time for all three, which I may not, because I have a a tendency to ramble, so we'll see, Um, but I've chosen three stories which um, are not related to that directly, to the, the nailing the 95 Theses, but uh, perhaps somewhat less known stories from the Reformation that all have um, some connection to this time of year, um, as I'll, I'll highlight. And also, I think one thing that they all have in common is they all pose the question of what does, Christian, what does a faithful Christian witness in the midst of persecution and opposition look like? When is, it a, a, when, when is discretion the better part of valor? When should Christians, uh, what are appropriate forms of compromise that are necessary for the advancement of God's kingdom? When should we stand on principle and refuse to compromise? If we stand on principle and refuse to compromise, should we stay and accept the consequences or should we move to somewhere safer? And I think these are questions that Christians are really facing today in the midst of an increasingly hostile society. Uh, To what extent should we... Uh, work within the structures of a hostile society, and if we are working within in those structures, how do we know when, how to pick our battles and how to be able to kind of, kind of lay low when necessary in order to be able to have some influence in that setting? Or when do we pull out of those structures in order to maintain faithfulness? Or when do we stay in those structures and be bold witnesses and accept the persecution that comes? So um, the different stories that we're going to look at are all uh, in different ways showing kind of different dynamics of uh, compromise and, and faithfulness in, in the Reformation. That's the one uh, that I want to start with here is Peter Martyr Vermigli. And um, Vermigli is fascinating in so many ways. Uh, you could really tell the whole story of the Reformation through his life because he ends up uh, participating either being geographically present in almost every Place where the Reformation happens, or at least being closely connected personally to people who are involved in the leadership of different regions of the Reformation. So we often think of the Reformation as kind of, well, we know what happened in Germany, we know what happened in England and in the Netherlands, um, and we know, and, and in Switzerland, of course. Uh, in France, the Reformation had a kind of a rocky time, uh, but we are we aware of that there was definitely a Reformation in France. But we tend to think the Reformation is not happening at all south of the Alps. But in fact, there was uh, a vibrant Italian Reformation uh, that unfortunately was thoroughly quashed by the Inquisition, but still yielded a lot of fruit in the fact that there were Italian Protestant scholars who came north fleeing the persecution of the Inquisition and had tremendous influence in centers of the Reformation in Northern Europe. And Peter Martyr Vermigli is, prob- is the greatest of these. In fact, he was acknowledged by his contemporaries to be perhaps the greatest intellect among all of the Protestant reformers. So he was born in 1499 in the city of Florence, Italy. So this is right. This is the period when Michelangelo was in Florence. Florence is really kind of the, the center of the Renaissance at this time. And he goes to study. Um, he becomes a monk at the age of 15 and went to study in 1518 at the University of Padua, which was considered perhaps the greatest university in Europe at that time. So this is right after Martin Luther started the Reformation in northern Germany. But he's an Augustinian monk in Italy, which is the heart of the the Catholic Church. And the Augustinian order, is that's actually Luther's order as well. It's the most prominent order of monks in the Catholic Church. Uh, And in Italy, they have tremendous influence. So um, in Padua, he studied, the, uh, all the, he studied the scriptures, he learned Hebrew and Greek. Uh, he was considered one of the greatest uh, Hebrew scholars in the, um, among the Protestant reformers. So he learned Hebrew, um, he taught himself Greek, actually, and um, read the Church Fathers, read the Medieval Scholastics, also studied classical literature a great deal. And you'll find in his works, he likes to cite... Not merely theologians, but he'll cite Aristotle, he'll cite Cicero, he'll cite uh, Galen and Hippocrates, who were famous uh, ancient Greek uh, 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 teachers of medicine. So he, he he liked to study biology and medicine as well. So he really had a just sort of a comprehensive liberal arts education, which he brought to bear in all of his scholarship later in life. So. Um, in the 1520s, he becomes friends with a fellow named Reginald Pole, who is a, an Englishman who's come to Italy, who's actually the cousin of Henry VIII, the king of England, who we'll come back to in, in another story. And um, so Pole and Vermegli both begin, they're not, they're not Protestant at this time, but they both feel strongly that the, the Church of Rome has many corruptions. Uh, that need to be dealt with. The monastic life has become very corrupt. The the papal authority is no longer serving the church but oppressing the church. Uh, Priests are, are not doing their job of teaching the people the scriptures. Very few priests really know the scriptures at all. So they become part of a reforming movement in Italy that is focused on studying the scriptures daily, that is focused on uh, trying to live them out faithfully, instead of a kind of uh, minimalism that you really had, right? Where the you know you could you could just do you could just do kind of the bare minimum, and then you could go and you could get the sacraments, and you could do confession to the priest, and make sure you got your your bases covered. You know, you could buy some indulgences to lessen your time in purgatory, and so on. So it didn't really um, foster a really serious spiritual life. So. Um, Paul and Vermigli, they made friends also with a guy named Gasparo Contarini, another Italian Augustinian, Uh, and together um, they kind of start this reform program throughout the Augustinian order. They're determined to kind of bring uh, bring the Augustinian order much more into line with its original founding principles and and in, in line with what scripture teaches and what they read in the Church Fathers. They're also beginning to read, especially Vermigli, Protestant works, works by Luther and by Zwingli that have been smuggled over uh, from Germany. So Vermigli's not a convinced Protestant at this time, but he thinks that a lot of the things Luther is saying are true. And um, he's trying to kind of slowly but surely work some of these reforms in, uh, into the Italian church. Now he actually becomes. The, um, the general of the Augustinian order. So he is the top guy in the entire Augustinian order of monks in Italy. Um, so he's one of the most important churchmen in all of Italy, and he's sort of becoming secretly a Protestant. Right? Uh, but at this time, the papacy, is, the, the papacy kind of went back and forth. The guy who is the pope at this time um, is much more reform-minded and um, actually appoints a commission to look into the abuses in the church and say, "Okay, look, you know, Luther's gone too far, but we obviously have some serious problems and we need to clean house. And so he appoints this commission to investigate the abuses in the church and recommend what the church needs to do to get its act in order. So Vermigli is appointed this commission. Reginald Pohl is appointed, Gasparo Contarini, uh, and then two others uh, who become kind of leading uh, leading figures in the Counter-Reformation. Jacopo Satelletto, uh, who's famous because Calvin wrote a famous text called Reply to Satelletto, um, and a uh, guy named uh, Giovanni Carafa, who becomes the leader of the Inquisition, but at this time is committed to reform. So in the late 1530s, they are working for reform. They, commit, they, they, they submit uh, a, a kind of program for reform right at the heart of the papal church, and this seems to be yielding a lot of fruit. In fact, in 1541, uh, Vermigli's friend, Contarini, is or not, No, yes. Yes, Contarini. I yes, of course. Um, so in 1540, actually, Contarini is sent as part of a delegation to Germany to meet with the Protestant theologians. I'm sorry, my phone is dinging. This is very embarrassing. I'm gonna try Hang on a second. There we go. Um, so this is known as the Colloquy of Regensburg. And this was an actual attempt by the Protestants. This is 24 years after Luther's nailed the 95 Theses. And it seems like the split between the Protestants and Rome is irreversible. But there's an attempt to come up with a formula that they can agree on. So Contarini is sent and is corresponding with Vermigli about what can we, what you know, I think these Protestants have a lot of good points. What kind of statement can we come up with that the Pope will sign on to and that the Protestants will sign on to and maybe we can actually heal this breach and bring Reformation to the heart of the church. Because, of course, remember, the purpose of the Reformation to begin with was not to split away and start a new church, but was to reform the entire church. And so uh, Luther and the the Protestants in Germany wanted to find a way to convince uh, the, the papal leadership to reform the church from within. And this was the Colloquy of Regensburg, was the best attempt that they had for this. So they actually came up with a statement of doctrine at the colloquy that uh, Luther wasn't there, but his assistant Melanchthon was. And Contarini and Melanchthon agreed to a set of articles of faith that seemed like both sides could mostly agree on. On, They kind of found some common ground on justification uh, and on the doctrine of the church and a lot of the other things that were dividing them. And... um, Vermigli at this time is uh, kind of running a school of Augustinian priests, and things are looking really good. Vermigli is is basically pretty much a complete closet Protestant at this time. He's he's pretty much signed onto the whole Protestant faith, but he's being careful about it, right? He's actually teaching it, teaching Protestant ideas to several other leading members of the Augustinian order in Italy, but he's keeping a low profile uh, because there's still certainly some strong anti-Protestant elements in the Italian church. But it looks like, if Contarini is successful, that the pope himself might accept a lot of the Protestant reforms. Unfortunately, there's a huge change that happens during the colloquy, and Cardinal Carafa, who had collaborated with Fermigli and Contarini, um, becomes convinced that, yes, reform is needed, but not in any way on the terms that the Protestants want to do it. The reform, act, in fact, needs to reassert papal authority uh, and kind of use papal authority to kind of clean house. And uh, so the, the Italian Inquisition starts up and they start rounding people up. And Contarini is summoned back from Regensburg. The document that he came up with is kind of shredded. They say, we're not going to go for this at all. And Vermigli comes under a lot of pressure. So at this point, Vermigli says, you know what? OK, it's been good, but it's time to, I, I can't kind of keep a low profile anymore. So he packs his bags he heads north to Switzerland, and he shows up in Zurich, the heart of the Swiss Reformation, says, hey, you know, I'm a leading Catholic uh, clergyman from Italy, and I'm actually on your side now. So it was sort of this, you know, weird moment for them, you know. It must have been like actually sort of when the Apostle Paul kind of first comes in and says, hey, you know, I was persecuting you, and I'm actually, I'm actually a Christian now. You know? so, um, so they're kind of freaked out at first. They're like, you know, is he a spy, or what's going on here? So they kind of drill him for like five days, you know, in, in his theology. Like, wow, this guy's actually a full-fledged Protestant. So um, then he is, Bullinger says, well, you know, we need to put you to use here. And they need someone to teach theology in Strasbourg, which is where Bootser is. So he goes to Strasbourg, starts teaching theology there for a few years. Uh, and then an even bigger opportunity comes where in 1548... Uh, in the English Reformation, which I'll come back to, um, the English Reformation is finally ha- King Henry VIII has died, and they finally have some freedom to really teach fully Protestant ideas in the Church of England. So Thomas Cranmer, who's the Archbishop of Canterbury, once uh, starts inviting leading Protestants from all over Europe to come to England and teach in the universities of Oxford and Cambridge. So Martin Buzer comes over from Germany and becomes the Professor of Theology at Cambridge, And Vermigli comes over and becomes the professor of theology at Oxford. And over the next five years, Bootser and Vermigli and Cranmer collaborate to establish many of the documents that then make up the Protestant Church of England. The Book of Common Prayer uh, is composed by Cranmer with a lot of input from Bootser and Vermigli, And the 39 Articles of Religion are also put in place. Then Vermigli is also responsible for a big reform of the ecclesiastical laws in England to try to get rid of some of the um, the old Catholic structures of authority. Unfortunately, that last project is left unfinished when Edward VI, who's the really Protestant-minded young king of England, dies suddenly in 1553. I think he's only 16 at the time, so. Um, and unfortunately, uh, Edward's the successor is Edward's older sister, Queen Mary, who's known as Bloody Mary, uh, because she is a devout Catholic, and she comes back, she, come, she comes over, and in fact, her husband is uh, the, the crown prince of the Holy Roman Empire, so, which is the, the great Catholic monarchy of Austria and Spain. So you have not merely a Catholic coming uh, to the throne of England, but Her husband is about to become the emperor of the great Catholic power on the continent. So um, Vermigli, as a kind of foreigner of great reputation, is um, allowed to leave. The the Protestants in England are imprisoned, and and as I'll come back to, many of them burned at the stake. Vermigli is permitted to go back to the continent. So he goes to Strasbourg, Germany again, where he had been before. Um, and many of the future leaders of the English church go over with him. They stick out with him and um, are study with him in Strasbourg. Then he doesn't get to stay in Strasbourg for very long again, because there are increasing tensions with the Lutherans there, and he's made to sign a confession of faith that acknowledges the Lutheran doctrine of the Eucharist, which is the doctrine that, that Jesus is physically present in the bread and the wine. So Vermigli is actually one of the greatest um, expounders of the Reformed doctrine of the Eucharist, the idea of the real spiritual presence of Christ, that Christ, isn't, Christ is indeed genuinely present in the Eucharistic uh, communion, but not physically, but by the power of the Spirit. So Vermigli is actually one of the key guys responsible for articulating that doctrine. Uh, John Calvin, who's often credited with it, said, if you want to know my doctrine of the Eucharist, go read Peter Martyr Vermigli. He has written about it better than anybody. So Vermigli can't stay in Strasbourg for very long, and he has to go back to Zurich, which is the first place he came when he fled out of Italy. So then he and Heinrich Bullinger worked together there for, I think, at this point, four years until his death, um, kind of presiding over the leading Protestant seminary, or uh, Reformed seminary, certainly, in, in Europe. And um, when he dies, shortly before he dies, Queen Mary in England had died too, and Queen Elizabeth comes to the throne and restores Protestantism in England. So then a lot of Vermeaglie's students who had followed him from England are then go over, go back to England, and become bishops in Elizabeth's church. And through that, Vermeaglie actually becomes the most important theological authority in the framing of the early Church of England, because his students are basically occupying all the key positions of influence. So it's real pity that English-speaking Protestants have almost no memory of this guy, who is perhaps even more so than Calvin, responsible for, I mean, I don't want to really say more so, but we'll say equally to Calvin, responsible for kind of framing the theological heritage of English-speaking Reformed Protestantism. But he also is an interesting example of the fact that the Reformation was much more international than we realize, right? I mean, they, he was part of a, a reforming movement in Italy. He was part of reform in Switzerland, in Germany, and in, in England. And he's an interesting example, too, of someone who, for as long as it was feasible, he tried to kind of work from within the system. You know, he, he held Protestant convictions, and instead of being outspoken about them, he was sort of strategically strategically stayed quiet so that he could build up as much reforming influence as possible within the Italian church, uh, without, but trying to do so without compromising his conscience. And when he was finally forced to compromise his conscience, he left. But the fact that he stayed in Italy so long actually bore a lot of fruit because um, several of his students there in Italy then later came north and also became leading teachers within uh, the Protestant universities in Europe. So I want to tell you about the story... Um, Another story of a, um, of a figure who is characterized by kind of ambiguous compromise um, and a willingness to stand for principle um, all the way to the, to the end of his life. And this is Thomas Cranmer, the Archbishop of Canterbury, who is, of course, more than anyone, more than Vermigli, responsible for, for the fact that England becomes a Protestant church. Uh, but Cranmer's life is a very... A very strange and very conflicted one right up until the end. Um, the, so Cranmer is um, he's, he's a, a teacher at Cambridge. He's not um, yet ordained, but um, still the, the, the universities are basically seminaries, and clerical celibacy was the expectation. You were, so you're supposed to become ordained if you're going to teach at Oxford or Cambridge. And if you were going to become ordained, of course, you couldn't get married at all. Well, Cranmer rashly got married in uh, 1519, I believe it was. So he was, at that point, uh, he was 36 already at that point, right? Again, you don't really care. But anyway, um, so he gets married, and um, his wife gets pregnant. And in fact, then she and the baby both die tragically in childbirth. Uh, which is a really, you know, real, leaves a real psychological scar on Cranmer, but is one of those strange things in God's providence that if that had not been the case, then he would never have been able to be, because his wife dies, he's considered, and he doesn't remarry immediately, um, he's allowed to become ordained. And so then he's allowed to take on positions of influence within the Church of England. So if his wife had not died in childbirth, he never would have become a leader of the English church. Uh, however, he then does something rather rash, so he becomes involved, well, what's happening in the 1520s in England is, some people probably know the story of Henry VIII, but, so Henry VIII is the king of England at this time, and um, he, has, he has a problem. So his, his father was actually the first person to bring peace after a very, very destructive period called the War of the Roses which is this prolonged civil war in England uh, because there's dispute about the succession. So for Henry, his, his, England is in a fragile state. If there's not a clear succession to the throne, then England could collapse into civil war again. So it's crucial that there be a clear successor to the throne, which means, really, there needs to be a male heir. Yes, there can be a female heir. Yes, there can be a queen. But realistically, if he only has daughters, then there might be some nephew, some, some grand-nephew, whatever, some strong male leader who makes a claim to the throne and brings about civil war again. So Henry has to have a male heir. Now, his first pro- so the problem he has is um, he, he's, he's married to Catherine of Aragon, who's the daughter of the king of Spain. And um, the reason he's married to her is she was married to his older brother, Arthur, who died, they were married as teenagers, and Arthur died very, very early in the marriage. And Henry's father was like, Well, you know, we got a useful bride here. I mean, she's the daughter of the King of Spain, so I don't really want to send her back. So, you know, let's put her to good use and marry her to Henry instead. So he marries her to Henry. Well, the reason this is a problem is because, according to Catholic canon law, uh, you can't marry your brother's wife because there's a prohibition in Leviticus on it. They didn't make some of the distinctions that we now make between the ceremonial law of the Old Testament and the civil law. They thought that a lot of that ceremonial law should still apply. So, you couldn't marry your brother's wife. Well, unless the pope said it was okay. Which, if a a major monarch uh, appealed to the pope, then the pope would always, you know, he'd charge a fee and then he'd say that's okay. So that's where the, 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 both the king of Spain and the king of England wanted this to happen. So the pope said, sure, he can marry his brother's wife. That's fine. But Henry always felt a little unsure about it. Uh, Henry was a man of sort of, uh, he, wasn't, he certainly wasn't a uniformly righteous man, but he, he was pious in his own way, and he had kind of um, a real, some real pious hang-ups about a few things. And he was always concerned about this issue, that he wasn't really sure that he was supposed to be married to Catherine. And as she had miscarriage after miscarriage he began to think, in fact, in Leviticus it says, he who marries his brother's wife, they shall be cursed, they shall be childless. So he's convinced that he's cursed by God. Well, eventually she has a daughter, but she still hasn't had a male heir, and that's critical. So as the 1520s go on, and he's getting older, and she's getting past her childbearing years, and she hasn't yet produced a son, he becomes very concerned about this, and convinced that he needs to, in fact, he never should have been married to her, and the pope needs to cancel this marriage, right? Uh, which you would often, as I said, the pope was perfectly willing to do this sort of thing. But in this case, uh, of course, the king of Spain does not want this to happen. The king of Spain does not want his daughter to be, have her marriage annulled and, and disgraced. And the king of Spain has tremendous influence over the papacy at this point. His soldiers are stationed in Rome, for one thing. So the pope refuses to grant Henry's request. So then what happens is Henry begins uh, consulting theologians from across Europe to get them their opinion. And to con- you know, so he- if he can get all the theologians to kind of present his case and say, yes, this is totally wrong. He shouldn't be married to her. This marriage is null and void. Uh, then hopefully he thinks he can win his case to the Pope. So Thomas Cranmer gets, as a Cambridge professor, gets kind of roped into this process. Um, and he's a real diplomat. He's really great at negotiating with people. So he's sent all around Europe to different... Uh, universities to get theologians' opinions about this subject. So through the late 1520s, he is helping Henry negotiate this break with Catherine, which increasingly becomes, Henry increasingly becomes convinced that the Pope is, uh, does not really have this authority after all. Henry had been a devout supporter of the, the Catholic Church, but when the Pope is continuing to stubbornly resist what Henry is convinced is the will of God, Henry begins to doubt that the pope has authority, which of course, lots of people in Europe are saying this. You know, Luther's ideas are getting far and wide. And Cranmer started reading Luther's ideas. We don't really know how much, but we know that Cranmer is becoming increasingly convinced, not merely on political grounds, but on theological grounds, that England should separate from the pope's authority. So, um, but then a curious thing happens with Cranmer. He's, he's He's in Germany for a period. Uh, hanging out with Protestant theologians there and apparently becomes more fully convinced of Protestant ideas, though he stays very quiet about it. And he gets married secretly. Now he at this point is a priest, which means he's not allowed to get married, uh, though he, in in Germany, since it was Protestant, priests were allowed to get married. So he said, hey, you know, when in Rome, do as Romans do, when in Germany, get married, right? Uh, And it was not too uncommon even for Catholic priests to have secret wives. But within a few months after getting married, um, the Archbishop of Canterbury dies. And Cranmer's not really that important a person. He's not even a bishop at all, English church. But he's been so reliable for Henry in this whole negotiation business that Henry appoints him to be Archbishop of Canterbury. So, and it's still officially Catholic country. So the Catholic Archbishop of Canterbury now has a secret wife. So um, Cranmer somehow amazed. So he, he brings her back to England with him as his maid and, and kind of keeps her stowed away in one of the sort of... He has several different residences. So he kind of sends her off to his country residence uh, and visits her from time to time. But everyone just thinks she's this German maid that he picked up. Um, and somehow, amazingly, he... Because Henry never really get... A, even when Henry breaks in the Church of Rome, Henry never really approves the idea of clerical marriage. So... Cramer can never admit to the king that he's married. So Cramer manages to keep his wife a secret for fully 15 years, which is, is quite a trick. So um, that was probably not, not the best, really, for, for marital, marital happiness. Um, there was a story circulated by his Catholic adversaries later on that he, had, um, that he actually had a special wooden chest with breathing holes made that he would carry her around when he was traveling. Uh, and that's, that's how they did it. But that's never been proven, so... But then he has to do some more kind of sneaky business because when he's appointed Archbishop of Canterbury, Henry at this point is thinking, okay, I really need to you know, reject the Pope's authority entirely and say the Pope has no authority over the Church of England. But he hasn't done that officially yet, and in order for the Archbishop of Canterbury to be appointed, the Pope has to appoint the arch- has to approve it. So Cranmer and Henry kind of go through this... and. So sorry. So it's complicated because Henry is still Catholic in doctrine but denies the authority of the Pope. Cranmer, at this point, is pretty full-fledged Protestant, denies the authority of the Pope and all of Catholic doctrine. But he can't let Henry know that latter part. And neither of them can really let the Pope know that um, they're rejecting the authority of the Pope because they need the Pope to approve Cranmer as Archbishop of Canterbury. So Cranmer does the traditional he has to swear an oath of loyalty to the Pope to become archbishop. And so he swore his oath, and then he immediately added an oath afterwards, saying that this, this oath did not extend, uh, could not in any way hinder, quote, the reformation of the Christian religion, the government of the English church, or the prerogative of the crown, or the well-being of the same commonwealth. And then he said, he also made an oath to prosecute and reform matters wheresoever they seem to me to be for the reform of the English church. So basically he said, I swear loyalty to the Pope, except if the Pope says anything that I think interferes with the reform of the church. So, and the thing is, the Pope was still hoping, the the papal um, representatives in England are still at this point hoping to convince Henry to come to some kind of compromise. So they kind of let this slide. Uh, But then within a few months, Cranmer helps Henry bring through all the legislation that detaches the Church of England from the Church of Rome. But it's still a very rocky road because for the next 14 years, Cranmer is the Archbishop of Canterbury, the leading authority in the English Church, and Henry is sometimes receptive to Protestant ideas and sometimes not. He kind of sways back and forth. Um, he 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 ends up the the wife that he 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 divorced. He succeeded in divorcing Catherine, and then he marries uh, his maid Anne Boleyn, and then he gets. Uh, angry at her after a few years and has her executed. Um, And Cranmer is very close to the Blen family, so Cranmer has to play that one very carefully. And then there's several times when Protestants, uh, who are unequivocally proclaiming Protestant doctrine in England, are arrested and executed because Henry, as I said, remains most of the time, kind of dependent on the day, most of the time remains very hostile to most of Protestant doctrine. So Cranmer has to play this careful game where he when he has chances, he appoints churchmen and political leaders who are favorable to Luther's Reformation, but he has to officially support Henry's policy of maintaining most of the Catholic uh, doctrines in place and even has to uh, sort of sign the death warrants of a couple of Protestant preachers. So he's deeply conflicted about all of this, but he has a really strong sense of his... um, he takes Romans 13 really seriously and feels like he has a really strong uh, obligation to serve the king, who is God's appointed king in England. And even when the king is wrong, he, Cranmer, needs to obey. Uh, so it's a really tough period for him. But finally, in 1547, Henry dies, and as I said, his young son, Edward, who's nine at the time and has been raised as a devout Protestant. Uh, and is very precocious, actually, but comes to the throne, and Protestant counselors are really in charge of things. And Cranmer is able to bring about a thoroughgoing reform of the church. Uh, But this only lasts for six years. Edward dies, Mary comes back. And then, um, this is uh, Cranmer. A lot of people flee to the continent. Cranmer encourages most of his friends to flee to the continent, but Cranmer says, my responsibility is to obey my ruler. I have a Catholic ruler now, I, my job is to stay here, and whatever happens to me, happens to me. So um, he stays on, and in, but instead of uh, executing him right away, because he's actually also guilty, not merely of heresy, but of treason, because he and some other leaders tried to, um, when Edward was dying, they tried to divert the succession and make sure that Mary didn't become queen. So they tried to appoint a relative named Lady Jane Grey queen. And that only succeeded for two weeks before Mary's armies came in. So is arrested both as a heretic and as a traitor. But because he has been the mastermind of the Reformation, they really want to make an example of him. So they're not going to kill him off quickly. Um, So they imprison him at Oxford along with the two other leading uh, leading men in the English Reformation which is Hugh Latimer and Nicholas Ridley so three of them are imprisoned in Oxford uh, until 1555 so this is from 1553 to 1555 and um, they start making a real effort to try to convert them back to the Catholic faith, if they can get them to recant before executing them, then it will be a huge public relations victory now, none of the three of them yield, uh, are, are yielding, and on October 16th, 1555, so that's the sort of connection to this time of year, so we celebrated this just last week, um, Ridley and Latimer are burned at the stake in Oxford, and um, this is a, it's a, a, there's a famous, there's a big memorial there um, where they're burned. And uh, Latimer's last words are, are, are very famous. Uh, Cranmer's made to stand there and watch as they're burned at the stake. Um, but they, they both remain very courageous to the last. And Latimer says, Be of good cheer, Ridley, and play the man. We shall this day light such a candle by God's grace in England, as I trust shall never be put out. So it's this uh, sort of heroic moment that gives actually a lot of encouragement to the Protestants who are still kind of hiding out in England. But the authorities are then more determined than ever to try to make Cranmer cave. And so they make sure that he's, he's now left on his own. He had been able to sort of sneak some letters back and forth to Latimer and Ridley during, his last, uh, during their last days. Now he's entirely on his own. And they start sending um, uh, Catholic uh, theological experts to him to try to convince him why he's wrong of, of, of everything. And he feels very conflicted about uh, many of the ambiguities that he was involved in, in Henry's reign. Um, and so he begins to cave on a couple points. And one be- thing that becomes really decisive for him is he's left sort of in total isolation except for his, um, his jail warden, who is a devout Catholic named Nicholas Woodson. And that becomes sort of his only friend in the world. This is the only person he can talk to. And he's sort of desperate for any kind of human interaction. So he becomes very close to Woodson during these months in prison. And um, when he refuses to sign a recantation, um, to, when he refuses to acknowledge the Pope's authority, Woodson becomes very angry with him and refuses to, refuses to talk to him again. And then Cramer kind of has this psychological breakdown um, and agrees to sign this recantation. And then there's... Um, so then they... They um, bring him out. They're going to have a big ceremony where they, he is officially uh, removed of his archbishop's authority, um, and he's going to sign his recantation. And he gains his courage again, and he said, instead of doing that, he's, he says, I appeal to a general council for my vindication. So he says, I don't acknowledge Pope's authority. I'm appealing to a general council of Christendom uh, to vindicate me. So they're like, oh, goodness, all right. So back to prison with him, okay, and then they start... Uh, kind of psychologically working on him again and they get him then to sign a series of further recantations and, and then he, he crumbles entirely in March and says, I was wrong about everything I, I was wrong about all of these doctrines I, 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 I appeal to the Pope for mercy and it looks like that they've won this huge, huge public relations victory so they're still going um, to execute him the Queen, uh, Queen Mary is too angry at him because, of course, um, he, she, he was responsible for her mother, Catherine of Aragon, being divorced and kicked out of England. So uh, she's kind of personally vindictive. So even though he has recanted his heresy, he's still going to be burned. Um, but they want to make sure that they win the biggest public relations victory they can before that. So they take him to the university church at Oxford. He's supposed to preach a sermon acknowledging all of his errors um, to the world and then there's going to be a sort of formal document published abroad with his recantation and um, he kind of the, the day before he's been really kind of in deep psychological anguish and he suddenly becomes very kind of calm and composed and when he comes to give the sermon um, he starts, he's had a, he has a script that he's presented him with what he's going to say and he starts reading out the sermon that he's going to give and he says and then he comes to the part where he says and now i'm going to tell you of all of the wicked things that i have written that i need to recant and the the authorities like yep here's the part and he says just 2 weeks ago i was i was forced to sign this document i was signed all these documents and i and i denied the gospel of christ and i recant of all of that so there's this uproar uproar in the cathedral um, and he, he, he yells out of the uproar, and as for the Pope, I refuse him as Christ's enemy and Antichrist with all of his false doctrine. And as for the sacrament, I believe as I have taught in my, bishop, in my book against the Bishop of Winchester, which was his famous book that he had written against the doctrine of transubstantiation. So when he says that last thing, they sort of they, they grab and they pull him down from the pulpit and just yank him off to the state. And there's just, uh, you know absolute uh, tumult in the streets. So they take him to be burned at the stake and um, he, he says, For as much as my hand offended, offended, writing contrary to my heart, my hand shall be puni- first punished therefore. So when they light the fire, he reaches his right hand at the fire until his hand it completely burns away uh, because of acknowledging the, the sin that his right hand had committed in signing this recantation. So um, this, of course, becomes a public relations disaster for the Catholic authorities in England, and gives tremendous encouragement to the Protestants hiding out there and Protestants abroad. And because of that, when Mary dies two years later, there's a huge backlash against uh, the Catholic authorities, and the Protestant faith is restored very quickly under Elizabeth, in part due to Cramer's witness. But it's ironic that he um, should have, that it was his right hand that he said was, was that that had offended most, because, of course, it's also to his right hand that he, through which he exercised the greatest influence, right? His, Cranmer is responsible for writing the Book of Common Prayer, which was the attempt to put the liturgy in the common language for the common people instead of in Latin, and became the most important Protestant liturgical document to come out of the Reformation. And Cranmer's very eloquent English writing has inspired many, um, many liturgies since. So the same right hand that he um, signed those recantations with was also, though, responsible for um, some of the greatest texts for the, of, of English Protestantism. Um, so I just want to um, close with a prayer. Merciful God, who through the work of Thomas Cranmer didst renew the worship of thy church by restoring the language of the people, and through whose death didst reveal thy power in human weakness, grant that by thy grace we may always worship thee in spirit and in truth, through Jesus Christ, our only mediator and advocate, who liveth and reigneth with thee and the Holy Spirit, one God, forever and ever. Amen.